Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 343 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we interviewed Ivy Gray of Wordrake as part of our new Fresh Voices of Legal Tech series. We've gotten a lot of great feedback on that episode uh, about Ivy's insights, especially, and a few comments on the good questions that uh, that you and I asked Tom too, which was was nice to hear. In this episode, we decided we could not ignore the six hundred fifty million dollar and growing AI locomotive steaming through legal tech. We've talked about generative AI and chat GPT enough already that Tom has uh, limited my mention of the term in previous episodes, but here we are again, Tom. Have we reached the top of the, the hype cycle on, uh, on AI yet? What are some realistic ways uh, that we need to start thinking about the current AI phenomenon and what it means and what it doesn't mean? Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? I don't know that I've been very successful about limiting your mentions of the term, and I certainly will not be successful in this episode, because in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will indeed be discussing the current state of generative AI in the legal world. Uh, Dennis has promised not to be a Pollyanna optimist on the topic. We'll see how that works out. In our second segment, we'll discuss the current commotion going on in the world of Twitter and various Twitter killers and what we are doing in the rapidly changing social media world. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start using the second that this podcast is over. And we'll see if we can get through it without some type of generative AI parting shot. All right, but first up, let's talk about the current state of artificial intelligence. Generative AI, chat GPT, large language models, machine learning, conversational AI, whatever else you might want to call it today uh, in the legal tech world. Uh, for those of you who may have seen the news, uh, uh, Thomson Reuters uh, purchased Case Text which, with its co-counsel artificial intelligence tool. Thomson Reuters seemingly putting a stamp of approval on artificial intelligence in the space. I will be honest, I have not had one one-thousandth of the time that Dennis has spent working with tools like ChatGPT, but I do have some opinions on the subject. Dennis, you have promised that you now have a bit of a contrarian view, won't be a complete cheerleader, but I still have my doubts. Um, what is your current thinking about these tools? You know, I'm actually uh, on the moderately bearish side, generally, at the moment. And on the, the legal side, I'm, I'm even more, more bearish, um, but I'm really interested in, in some of the experiments I'm doing. So let me sum it up here. I think we'd all be much better off and have more realistic expectations if we thought of where we were now was not ChatGPT4, but ChatGPT 1.4. And I, because I think that would give us a more realistic set of expectations about the state of the art of these tools and that they are, uh, to me, as I keep finding, 
there, there, I keep running into the constraints. And so I'm intrigued by certain possibilities, but I definitely see the limitations everywhere. And so uh, I base that on my experience teaching the class at, uh, in AI and, and the law at Michigan State. Um, and also the work we, we did uh, talk about AI and law at Michigan in my class there, and the uh, frankly hundreds of chat GPT experiments that, that I've done this summer. And so I keep becoming more and more aware of the limitations, and that's some, one of the things that we'll, we will uh, uh, talk about. Tom, I don't know where you're at these days. Well, I, you know, I... I haven't done hundreds of chat GPT experiments. I've done some some experiments and they've really been um, they've been less experiments and they've been more of thinking, here's a problem I need to solve. Let's see what chat GPT can do for me in this instance. And I will say I reached much the same conclusion. I'm I think there are some significant limitations, even though there are very interesting ways to use the tool that can help get you something that's quality. I think that there's a lot of limitations. Um, you know, what is interesting to me, what I am paying attention to is that I am hearing about chat GPT everywhere. News reports are talking about it. Different industries are talking about how it can help them. Every day I see 10 different articles on, quote, how generative AI will completely revamp how, insert name of industry here, works. And the takeaway from that is, uh, you know, to repeat what we mentioned on a previous podcast, generative AI has captured a huge mind share, um, is that everyone is talking about it to some extent, which is very interesting to me. But while I see and I hear people saying, here, I, I used ChatGPT to do this, and I tried this out, and the lawyer got sanctioned because he used ChatGPT to generate a bunch of fake case citations, I still think, like most technologies, very few people are taking advantage of it. Very few people are using it in their work, in their play, in whatever reason. So I still think it has, you know, even for, for general adoption, we're still way low on the hype cycle, at least for, for most people. Or way high on the hype cycle right, and, right, right, and right. Trend, trending down. Correct. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess, Tom, it's worth mentioning that we did that episode on the Gardner hype cycle a while back and that's uh, people are interested in the hype cycle approach to things, which I think is really useful to understand uh, where we're at in AI. Uh, recommend that that earlier episode. Yeah, I sort of, I, I just see people, I, I think there are ways that uh, generative AI has some some really fascinating potential. Um, and and I was I was doing some things today where I was I was definitely seeing that. But it, I think you're right. People talk about using it in ways that to me just don't make any sense, and then they're they're disappointed. You're like, I had Chat GPT pick stocks, and a week later they aren't up by a huge amount. So therefore, um, it's not a good tool. I'm like, why would you even use it for that? That makes no sense. But to go back, Tom, and I think that uh, to echo what you said, I think lesson number one is that, that generative AI has some constraints and you really hit them quickly. And, and that's, that's the thing that I noticed. It's, uh, it is sort of gives you the sort of average, the sort of consensus. It can be repetitive. It, it uh, can, 
can be sort of beside the point. There are some, definitely some issues coming from the way it was trained and how you use it and what you have to do with, with prompting. And I guess the, the big one is that the, it was trained, um, you know, through up or I guess up until 2021. And so you have to do something separate to get uh, more current information and to connect it to the internet. And I think that's where things really start to break down. So if you ask ChatGPT a question about something that's current, it will tell you that it was only trained until, you know, on data before 2021, and it's not able to answer that. If you use the Bing and, and Google tools or the plugins that connect to uh, the internet, I just find that to be the results you get are just a mess and they're close to unusable. And Tom, I hate to say this, it, it makes me long for the those early days of Ask Jeeves when you could ask a question and, and get something that seemed like an answer back. I'm, I'm just totally disappointed by what I see comes back when you're connecting these tools to the internet. I will say the one thing that having AI and Bing and Google is that it does search recent content. So, you know, I can go in there and say, you know, how is Alcaraz doing at Wimbledon? And it will tell me how Alcaraz is doing at Wimbledon because it's got current, it's, it's, it's not limited to the 2021 uh, constraint of the time. But for me, frankly, that's the only thing that it has going for it because what's interesting to me is it doesn't make the search engine smarter. It's only retrieving what the smart engine, the search engine would retrieve in the first place. I sort of view the value of AI in a search engine is making it easier for you to create a natural language query, is that you can talk to it like a person rather than just enter a couple of keywords and it will answer you back. But I, I'm planning a trip uh, in November and I asked for the best restaurants in a particular city. And it made the, well, the first thing it said was searching for best restaurants in city. And it was clearly it had taken my natural language query and turned it into just keywords. And I'm thinking this doesn't feel like uh, artificial intelligence. And and it brought me the top 10 restaurants that were the same top 10 restaurants in a link. And it just gave me four links here. Go check these out. Top 10, top 15 best romantic meals in this city. It was no better than just getting regular search results. So I would say the same thing. I, I'm, I'm not real impressed and haven't really made that much use of the tools that are in Bing or in Google. I have not used Bard. I would say that I get much more value um, of, uh, of using ChatGPT, even though it might be as dated as 2021. Yeah, I actually think in a weird way that working within that 2021 training constraint and not using up to the minute search or research is where, for me, I'm finding really interesting uses of the large language models uh, today. So I understand that that's a constraint and then I can start to work, you know, within that constraint. So I can say, you know, summarize the, you know, the key concepts and principles of this book that I know is before 21, uh, 2021. And, and then I can turn that into an, a, you know, an analysis tool in, in Chad GPT. And I can do other things like that. And so it's really kind of interesting to me to play with the 
constraints. And, you know, as, as Tom, as you kind of alluded to earlier, as, as I keep experimenting, this is things I'm finding as I, I keep doing more and more uh, with this to say, here's some problems I'm running into based on the data sets and other, other things that I see uh, that are useful. And then I also see the value, the real value I'm getting is that this is giving you answers that get you the consensus or the average answers. And there are certain cases that can be really useful. On the contrary, there are things that I've run into where I know of the topic really well and the results are super average or super generic and they're, they're actually unhelpful. But there are other places where getting that consensus or, or sort of best practices, other things like that that are sort of standard as a starting point can actually be quite useful. Well, you know, for me still, the biggest value is in the ability to generate content that I can take then and work with. It's never going to be a final version, but I will tell you, I got a reasonably good result taking taking the transcript of one of my company's webinars. I fed it into ChatGPT. I said, please summarize this webinar. And I broke it into chunks and created two or three blog posts out of it. I mean, it was not perfect when it started, but it got to the summarization parts quick enough and easy enough to where it, gener it, it genuinely saved time in doing that. So I find lots of value in that. But granted, I'm not spending the kind of time on, on this as you are, um, which I also assume is running into its own set of constraints. Yeah, and I think the ones that people will run into if, as you start to use it for are the limitation in the prompt windows. So how much you can put into them, uh, the limited size of documents you can work with unless you, you really go through s some uh, procedures to try to pull larger documents in. And then, and I, I guess I need to say this, but if you're using ChatGPT, the OpenAI version, you really need to spend the $20 a month um, to get uh, the access that you need. But you're still going to run into limits on uh, 25 searches in three hours and other things like that. There will be big hindrances if you really have a big project or you want to try to, to, to learn a lot. Tom, break time? Yep, we have more to say on the subject, but for now, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. 
And we are back. Tom, the one thing I see most people in the legal field miss about the current state of generative AI is the essential role of humans in the middle. Would you agree? Well, I would agree, but I would say also this applies to all occupations, right? I mean, it's not just we're seeing it in the legal field. We're seeing it in all fields. Just say AI is replacing, insert name of profession here, and you'll find people asking that question. Um, you know, a, a, a web designer offered to use AI for us to generate some search engine optimized keywords uh, for our website and showed us some examples. And one of the people looking at them said, no way, these are terrible. We're never going to use them AI for anything. They're going to replace what we do, and I will never do that. But, you know, we were able to take that list and work with them as a, again, as a starting point, not as the be-all, end-all. And that person showed their value in being able to take that information, come up with a list that they were, we were ultimately happy with, and that person has now changed their mind about the value of this. And so, you know, I, I think that's a, a major thing that's, that's missing is people are forgetting, you know, this is not going to replace humans and can't be expected to anytime soon. Well, and I think this, uh, the, the, that's the understanding of this whole human-in-the-middle approach. So if you look at chess, you look at the other things, it's, it's not, um, I mean, it's cliche, but it's really true that the best chess player in the world now is, is, is not a human and is not an AI. It's a human uh, using AI or is an AI working with a human. And so that, I think, is the big, big thing for me to... To understand, and that's why the AI replacing lawyers to me is just a, uh, almost a waste of, of time to talk about. So I think that what the generative AI uh, tool gives you is a, a way to to kind of put yourself in the middle. And then what I find uh, is, it, and it gives me first drafts, it gives me first screens, and then I usually work it to the point where it becomes very clear that the AI is not able to help me anymore. And then I have sufficient information where the next step needs to be that I take it and go further. And then, whether that's improving my writing or, you know, people who, uh, you know, I, I can't even imagine like why people would would use this for legal research at the at the current state in, in the way that they seem to think they, they, they can or want to use it. Uh, I, I really struggle with the whole concept but but I think it, that you see that the the way that this is going to work is to have the humans in the middle and to understand how it can help you, and I think that first draft first screen approach is, is a is a big thing. I agree with everything you're saying, and I think that you know what I'm seeing, and I think you backing this up is the fact that it feels very similar to when Web3 came out, and it feels very similar to when the metaverse came out. And what suddenly we're seeing experts on this topic and experts on artificial intelligence, legal experts talking about uh, here are what uh, you need to do. Are you seeing that on your end too? I sort of am amazed that lawyers are able, good marketing lawyers are able to pivot uh, quickly to talk about things that really haven't been resolved by the technology in the first place. You know, it's a it's a weird thing, Tom. I, I I monitor some of the leading voices in the AI field, and I've been around it for a while. And and I'm not just talking about legal AI. I try AI experiments almost every day. 
I still consider myself a beginner. I'm just starting to learn some things that I would feel kind of comfortable presenting on, but as a as a kind of we learn it together kind of thing. And I think generative AI and the large language models are very new, especially in law. And I just am stunned uh, by how many legal experts have now hung out their shingles, launched their marketing, and are speaking everywhere. Like I've I've seen some of the people speak a couple of times on AI, and there are so many experts in the legal area, so many presentations, and, and, and I've seen ones on best practices in using AI in law. I mean, like, seriously, this stuff just came, the ChatGPT stuff just came out at the end of November, like best practices, I don't even know what they're talking about. So I, I think the news I have for people is, Caveat emptor and reader and listener uh, emptor uh, when you're hearing stuff about AI, especially in law. There are big issues out there, big concerns, a lot of unaddressed problems with the data sets, other things like that. And the idea that we get people talking about best practices just blows me away. Well, isn't the best practice of AI, isn't it user beware? I mean, it's all seems to be all the same stuff. But yeah, I, I agree. I think there are many things that it is far too early uh, to be opining on and, and, and having those types of opinions. What else are you seeing out there, Dennis? We're going to wrap this up soon, but tell me some of the other things that you're seeing right now that, uh, that either give you cause for concern or cause for optimism. I talked to my students about the, uh, the Gartner hype cycle and how like the hype cycle on AI has felt like it went up to the highest heights of anything that I've ever seen in technology. And that leads me to think that the, the slope downward into the trough of dis despair is going to be super steep. And I think we're starting to see some signs of that uh, where people are disappointed. You see this, this story about uh, the lawyer's discipline for using uh, allegedly, I, I would say. I, I still have our friend early attorney said that, you know, there are questions about whether those lawyers really used ChatGPT on their legal research and stuck to the story or whether they just thought it was a good excuse for uh, sloppy legal work. Interesting theory from Ernie, you know, but I, th I think there's some things out there. We know that the regulators have yet to weigh in on AI in general. We know that the bar regulators have now uh, uh, weighed in. Uh, there are concerns about this technology, how it was created, who runs it, who profits it from it, the biases in it, the concentrations of power, which are very real, and how it will be used and not used. These are complex, difficult questions, and I think there's uh, a ton of uncertainty about it. So I, I, I don't know if you have anything to add there, Tom, and then, then I have uh, one thought I wanted to wrap up with. Well, I mean, I think with it, we can um, reliably predict that the bar regulators and other regulators will weigh in on this after years of, uh, of further work has happened. And then suddenly um, someone will recognize that, oh, my gosh, this is a problem that we should be dealing with. So I don't expect this to be any different from any other uh, from any other technology that they have failed to weigh in on in a timely manner. I, you know, I think as we've said before, I won't waste time echoing it other than to say lots of good opportunities here, lots of good potential, but a whole lot of improvement needs to be made and a whole lot more needs to be learned, um, I think, before lawyers are really going to be able to take uh, a better advantage of this technology.
You know, my ultimate take, and this is what I told my students uh, in my AI class, is that I, I think it's time to roll up your sleeves and learn where it can help you and where it's not ready for, for prime time. You know, Tom, people who know me know I'm always going to say it comes down to jobs to be done and getting clear on what you're hiring uh, generative AI to do for you. And um, and that's what I'm working on uh, right now. What is it that it can do me do for me? What does it work for and what doesn't it work for? And I think if we get clear on that, um, that's going to solve a lot. I, but I do think there's going to be, uh, you know, some backlash of and disappointment of all, all kinds um, that I, I can't predict where they're going to come out. So here in July 2023, I'm moderately bearish on generative AI in legal in the short term. Um, and that's because I expect a big regulatory backlash in a number of forms uh, between now and, and the end of, of end of this year. But I'm bullish in some specialized areas of the law practice, especially in the, the long term. I, I will say, Tom, um, and you might disagree with me on this, uh, but I think legal research is not one of the areas I'm bullish on. I think it's an incredibly difficult problem, and I'm not sure that the large language models are the right tool to attack um, the job to be done uh, that legal research is. And I say that even though some people have 650 million reasons uh, that they think the contrary. Well, I would say that for the 650 million reasons, there are some uses for that particular tool that are good. Point the large language model at a large set of discovery and ask for it to find uh, information about something. I think it's it's up to that task. But I tend to agree with you, given ChatGPT's penchant for providing completely fake citations, I don't know that I would trust it to do legal research until you're able to feed it to a correct database. And maybe that's maybe that's what the $650 million uh, investment uh, is going to lead to, is maybe it, it's going to make for smarter uh, artificial intelligence. But until then, I think we have a ways uh, to wait. All right. That's all we said on this subject for now. I'm sure we will speak more about it later. But until then, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. In the past week, Elon Musk has destroyed the usefulness of a tool called TweetDeck that I use daily, then brought it back as a pay-only service as part of his latest effort to either drive Twitter into the ground or to make it, and I'm doing air quotes here, successful. I had the biggest influx of followers I've ever had, and admittedly that was only about 10, over a couple of days on uh, Jack Dorsey's Twitter competitor, Blue Sky. And the legal tech journalism world seemed agog last week with uh, the story of Mark Zuckerberg's new Twitter killer called Threads on Instagram, which I saw today now has 
100 million users. Um, and I can't even imagine that uh, that stream of uh, whatever they're going to call thread tweets uh, coming at me would be like. Tom, we talked about Twitter competitors and moving off Twitter several times since Musk took over. I guess we need to hit the topic again, if only to let our listeners know what we are currently thinking and doing. Tom, do you even care about this anymore? And if so, what are you doing and planning to do? So what I don't care about anymore is Twitter. And I'm pretty much done with Twitter. Every time I come around, it, now I have to be logged in all the time just to view a tweet. I've recently heard about the rule that if you are not a subscriber, you can only view something like, what is it, 600 tweets a day or something like that. I think that's the limit of what you can wa uh, uh, watch. Uh, you have to subscribe to see, any, see, I guess, I hope it's an unlimited amount if you subscribe. Um, but the rules change from week to week, and it's new things that you can't do unless you have a subscription to it. So I, it's it's crazy. It's just crazy town, and I'm completely done with Twitter. I have no – they've done away with the API. They've done away with all the apps that actually make Twitter useful, um, and so I'm, I'm done. As for a competitor, as for where to go after this, I'm torn – because I'm, and, and I think that the jury is still out on this because, I, you know, I originally thought that some of these other tools, Mastodon, uh, what was the other one? Post. Does anybody talk about Post these days? I don't think so. Blue Sky, I thought Blue Sky has an opportunity here, but I've been, I, I, I did a search yesterday for how many users are on Blue Sky, and it blew me away. It says, Currently, there are 180,000 subscribers on Blue Sky and a wait list of 1.9 million people. That suggests a real problem with onboarding. I mean, they've got some real issues there. But to me, a community of 180,000 people is not a community. It's not enough for it's not enough critical mass to make it worthwhile to me. Now, Threads is interesting. It's interesting to me because it immediately got some critical mass. But the caveat there, and the one thing to pay attention to is, is that it only got to 100 million because Instagram, you, you made it very simple for the people who are already in Instagram to immediately become Threads users. And, and there wasn't much friction to getting that done. And, and I think Instagram has over a billion users. So really, this is 5% of, uh, of, of Instagram people have joined. What'll be interesting to me is to see how that catches on. And I'm, I am marginally involved is not the right word because I really, I haven't, I don't think I've sent my first thread yet on threads, but I like it because it's got a lot of engagement on it. And, and I don't know that I see that in other places. So I'm at least encouraged by that, but I'm still biding my time. I'm still waiting to see I'm not just convinced in any of these. I'm, I'm, I'm mourning, still mourning the loss of the Twitter that I used to know and that I really enjoyed communicating on. My part of Twitter, not the toxic, hate-filled parts of Twitter that, uh, that we see more in the news these days. But I'm still not sure what my Twitter replacement ends up being and whether that's, I mean, right now it feels like threads just because I see that's where all the people are going. But, um, you know, that might change in two weeks. So I'm not sure at this point. Dennis, what about you? No, I was thinking time for both of us is like 16 years on Twitter, right? Yep. Something like yep. that. So it's, it's hard. Um, it really is hard to you know, something that you use regularly to to see it go away as it feels like. Um, 
And there's a part of me, Tom, and I mentioned this the other day, that I, I sort of have this belief or fantasy, I guess, that uh, that it sometime in the next few weeks that Elon will grow tired of this and sell it to a group that cares for a dollar and maybe it will come back to the way it was. But I realize that that's kind of fantasy. It's easy, uh, relatively easy to, to sign up for social media services. It's really hard to post to them and to do that consistently and to, to actually use them and be engaged in them. That's what I think is hard. And as I look at Twitter, I'm sort of wondering, like, what, why I need to have this sort of short form text based social media platform anymore. So that's where my thinking is. And I'm, I'm thinking, like, you know, LinkedIn may do most of the stuff that I want. I don't need like, 100 million users. I don't need 180,000. If I, I just had a group on, on Mighty Networks, it was just people who had, who were a community of interest, that'd be awesome for me. And so those are the ways that I'm, I'm thinking of going. And I hate, uh, you know, that I've been on this thing for 16 years. And I think I've said on the show before, Tom, that I evolved this Twitter persona over 16 years that now I really like, and I hate to kind of kill that persona off, but I sort of feel like I have to, and that even the days where I try to uh, talk myself out of it, Elon does something that's just so horrifying that I, I, I question how I can even stay on one more day, even though I hope that he sells it for a dollar at, at, at some point here soon. So that's where I, I'm sort of thinking of, of simplification, and then really thinking of what it was that I used Twitter for and what I need to do. And do I have better, more productive and more focused use of the time that I was using for Twitter? So that's where I'm at. Now it's time for our parting shots. That uh, one tip website or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. I just returned from vacation and I will tell you that the most useful technology tool that I used during the trip and it's been around for a while, so this is not absolutely new, but I've, it's the first time I've used it out in the wild, is Google's Magic Eraser. And I will tell you, that is freaking magic, because one of the worst things about going on vacation and going to tourist traps, where there's tons of people around, is it's impossible to take a picture without somebody being there. You sit there and you wait, and then that one person wanders up to the very front of the monument you want to take and just sits there and looks at the plaque at the bottom and reads every word for 20 minutes so you can't take the picture. It's impossible to take good pictures without somebody being in it. And Google, if you haven't seen it, Google Photos makes it very simple to move people with almost a click of the button. I would pull up a photo on my phone if it identified it immediately, it would give me an option. It said, remove people from this photo. Um, and I'm like, you are speaking my language. I press that button. It takes about maybe seven or eight seconds. And then it highlights all of the what they think are people in the photo. They are 95, 98% right about that. You click another button and they vanish as if they were never there. I mean, it's, it deleted 
15 people from a photo in a tour group that I was in. It was It's not just one or two people. It's a lot of people. I am amazed. It's not 100% great. There are some areas where, you know, one thing that it doesn't delete, which is interesting to me, is it'll delete a person. It will not delete their shadow. So sometimes they look a little interesting where the shadow still shows up, uh, but the people aren't there. But I will say I was able to really get my pictures in really nice shape this year, um, and it's all because of Google Eraser. It's not just for people who have Pixel phones, although it's easier on a Pixel phone. If you have Google Photos, whether it's iOS or Android, you have Magic Eraser, and I urge you to use it on your travel photos. Dennis. So this is like the positive version of, of deepfakes, right? Because <laughs> I can adjust the photo to, to what I want to be. So I, I think this is really cool. And, and uh, is there, you think there will be like an augmented reality form where you can kind of take people out like while you're looking through goggles and get them out of your way in real time? That'd be kind of cool me, too. That requires me to wear goggles though. We're not there yet. So I wrote a, a new column that I turned in this morning, so it should be out by the time that this, uh, this uh, podcast is released uh, for Legal Tech Hub. And I do a column on, on law department innovation. And I was talking about uh, jobs to be done theory, which I mentioned again on the show. And I probably mentioned on what time, like about 40% of the shows that we've done over the years. So I, I think it's a great time to learn about jobs to be done. So I'll recommend my new article. And then I also, just to tie it to the first topic, is that I played around with doing a summary of jobs to be done theory into chat GPT, uh, and then using that to generate ways to analyze things that I was thinking about doing using the jobs to be done theory. And the results were actually pretty good. And uh, and I said, you know, I always think of the AI stuff as doesn't give me a first draft or a first screen, which it more than adequately did. And it allowed me to do something and it gave me ideas and structure for some things that I went on to, to, to make more precise and shape what I was doing. So uh, Josh Be Done Theory, totally great. Go back and listen to our Bob Moesta interview show, which Tom always calls the Dennis uh, Buys a New Blender show uh, to get an idea of how it works in action. But uh, nice combination of learning this and then play, using it as an example to play with in chat GPT. And if you are playing the Kennedy Mall Report drinking game at home, Dennis did say chat GPT another six times. So uh, drink, drink, drink. And so that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode on the Legal Talk Network's page for the show. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts along with transcripts. If you want to get in touch with us, Twitter is not the right place to go. You can always reach out to us on LinkedIn. Uh, you can uh, leave us a voicemail. We love to get voicemails uh, for our B segment. Uh, give us something to talk about. Give us questions to answer. That phone number is 720-441-6820. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. As always, a big thank you to the Legal Talk Network team for producing and distributing this podcast. And we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report 
only on the Legal Talk Network.